Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. It's time for another episode. Another episode of the Strange and Beautiful Book Club, where we talk about Dune like a lot, a lot. Deep cut. Deep cut. So you want to go ahead and do it? Because I got my finger uh, on the let's button. Let's do it. Okay. The right button. The correct button. Yes. Cool. Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. Deep Cuts. Dune Edition. Oh, I'm Honey, out of practice. You usually say deep cut. Oh, okay. Sorry. Let's do this again. Uh, let's do this again. Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. And this is the straight... Oh, God damn it. We have too many podcasts. Hi, I'm Rachel. And <laughs> I'm Matt. <laughs> Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. Deep Cut. Dune Edition. We got it. <laughs> three tries. Three tries and we got it. All right. I was looking at the cast on IMDb, so I don't forget everybody's names. Because we are talking about the sci-fi miniseries of Dune. Frank Herbert's Dune. Frank Herbert's Dune. And I think it was released. Of course, now I'm on the cast 2000. list. 2000. 2000. 23 years ago. You don't have to hurt me like that. I know. I, I saw one that's like, how is it that kids born in tw- in the year 2000 are 23? And I was born in 1985, and I'm 23. <laughs> 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 I don't understand. I feel that so deeply. But I watched this when it came out, like appointment watch this. I remember waiting. It's three episodes long. Each episode is movie length like an hour and 40 minutes. I think it was two hours in total with commercials. So this is six hours of Dune content. Oh, yeah. And I really think it's one of my favorite adaptations. I'm pretty sure this is why my standard hairstyle has been (laughs) brushed forward, front flipped up. You are. Who had that hairstyle? Who are you uh, that's emulating? That's kind of how Paul has his hair after he joins the front. Yeah, end. after he does the glow up. Yeah, his his aging slash maturing look uh, makeup change. Wow. I mean, thank you, I guess, for your standard <laughs> hairstyle for the last twenty three years. When it's not too long to do that, and it just stands up on its own, which is what it's doing right now. But this stars William Hurt as Duke Leto Atreides. And I guess he was a Dune fan and regretted that he had to he wasn't in the eighties Dune until Oh really? Well, until the eighties Dune sucked so bad and then he was <laughs> like, Oh, dodge that bullet. Now I get a chance to be in another one instead. Do it right this time. I thought he was a really good Leto Atreides. Ditto. I see Leto as a very like steady all conflict is internal kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Like, I literally am always aware that I'm being watched and I have to present a well put together front at all times. Right. And I thought William Hurt was a good choice for that. And I I liked his delivery of the line, they tried to take the life of my son. Yeah. Better than Jurgen. Because there's a contrast. Right. There's a yeah. contrast in his emotional performance. Right. Because every other time he's like having a conversation about, you know, bad thing just happened. I need to stay calm. Right. But then in this other scene, he's just with his like trusted lieutenants and he can be emotive. Right. Exactly. And so, and we get a lot more of William Hurt 
in Paul's visions. Yes, we do. Um, we get him in like a variety of ways. We get clips from what will be future events, but we also get like metaphorical things, seeing yes. his dad's face melt Symbology. away. Symbology. Symbolism. Yes. I think the word you're looking for there is <laughs> symbolism. Yeah, and I thought that Alec Newman was a really good choice as well. He didn't go on to do a ton of this stuff. This is who I think of <clears throat> in my head when I'm reading the books. Yeah, he does petulant and obnoxious and moody really well. Oh, yes. So, Absolutely. So, so well. And he didn't go on. I mean, he's gone on to be like, oh, that guy. Yeah, he's been in like one episode of a bunch of television shows. He's been in, he does a lot of voice acting, but this didn't really like, this wasn't like a springboard for his career. Right. Um, I don't know. The 2000s is really an era of miniseries. We have a miniseries uh, explosion around the year 2000. And this was one of sci-fi's first miniseries attempts. And I think it's really successful. I have always enjoyed this adaptation. Yeah. I have not rewatched this adaptation in a really long time. Yeah. And I did not realize how dated the CG would be. <laughs> I, when we were watching this, I was like, oh, when exactly was this? Oh, this was the year after episode one, The Phantom Menace. Yeah. And everybody was just doing as much CG as you could throw into the movie. Yeah. And at the time, it looked good for CG of the time. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. It's okay. It's, I have seen, there's a, or maybe it's not on Netflix anymore, but there was a, a TV show on Netflix that just came out. And I think it was like First Bite or First Kill. I don't know. The CG was no better is what I'm getting at. I was like, <laughs> I almost felt nostalgic watching the CG because I was like, oh, that looks like like early 2000s. It looks like a Final Fantasy VII cutscene. I said, that looks like early 2000s, like made for TV movie, sci-fi made for TV movie CG. It reminded me of Babylon 5 CG. It did. Yeah, it was very much like that. But they use it sparingly in, in their defense. They Right. They do a lot of, we clearly have maybe 20 feet by 15 feet of sand, and then we have right. a giant matte painting. There's a painting. lot of matte paintings, and I prefer a well-done matte painting to poorly done CG. Of course you like matte paintings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've never heard that joke before. Yes, I think it... Um, does it create the same sense of realness that maybe filming on location would have? No, no. But, but is it for still a, fine for a made-for-TV miniseries? It's the less bad option. This isn't the era of we throw tons of fucking money at television. Right. This isn't I bought the rights to like. Uh, two paragraphs in the annex of this one Tolkien novel for a billion dollars. I'm going to somehow extra extrapolate it out into a television show. This is like, here you go. You have a pack of cigarettes, you have a pound of cocaine, and you have $10,000. I need a miniseries by the end of the week. <laughs> Don't sell the cocaine. That's for the actors. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. I think that's a very good summary of the vibe for TV production. Yeah. In the 2000s. Yeah. yeah you, television was not serious. Television was not serious in the way it's serious well, now. Well, even in the year 2000, most people still had CRT TVs. Yeah. Almost nobody had high definition TV. I think the 1080 spec was defined. But it wasn't something that was like advertised on consumer right. TVs because a lot of times your TV, like cable quality, you didn't get 1080p on yeah, your cable so who gave box. A shit? Why would you do that? Right. So yeah. you're not going to throw the matte painting on the extra blurry, you know, the, the blurring effect of the analog TV is going to look great. Yeah. 
Well, and I also think it helps us to underscore the fact that the most important thing in Dune is the characters. Yes. And when you create a matte painting, you get the feeling of where you are, but you also get a feeling of intimacy. Because right, you don't... and it lets the characters get the feeling of where they are right. without, without green screens and stuff. Well, yeah, but also you as a viewer are not lost in the expanse right. of, of being in the desert. It's You're... like you, you were saying uh, one of your criticisms of The Hobbit – Yes. In theaters was that everything was crisp, high definition, and in focus. Well, we saw it in the high frame rate. Yeah. Yeah. And so part of what the filmography does is guide your eye to what is meaningful and significant for the viewer in this scene. Yeah. But when everything has the same crispness and focus, you can be lost. Right. And so having a matte painting behind the actors really highlights the actors as the meaningful thing to fo- for the viewer to focus on. Yeah. Yes. And we get – so some more of our actors just before we whoosh off a little bit too far. Uh, we have Saskia Reeves. As the Lady Jessica. And she's been in some other stuff. She's another one of those like, oh, I've seen her in other things. I recognize her from other things. Um, She's really the only other one that I recognize. Oh, I mean, I recognize P.H. Moriarty, the guy who plays Gurney Halleck. Giancarlo. Well, Giancarlo, we're not there yet. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay, we're we're introducing the cast in order of appearance. I guess. But this is Gurney Halleck. And he's the one that uh, he plays in Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Yes. He usually plays the like crazy dude, the crazy British dude, but he's like a serious character in this. He does a good job. I think he's a good gurney. And then we get Ian McNeese as the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. I do really like him as the Baron. uh, He does a good job. And uh, kudos to the sci-fi executives in the 2000s. Maybe it was the pound of cocaine, but they were like, hey, can we let him be gay? And they were like... Yeah. Can we let him be well, I guess he doesn't really go into the pedophile angle. No, no. No. That's a step too far. But and I'm I'm fine with that. Right. But they're like, can we maybe include the fact that he really enjoys the company of men? That cool with you guys? And they're like, sure, do some cocaine about it. He's, Not he's a the problem. bad guy. He's a yeah. Well, that's a whole other thing. But yes. <laughs> um Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Othered as a way of pointing out that he's the villain. Right. But he sells it. There's that he scene really does. where he gets the glass. He gets a like a um, wine glass from a servant and they make eyes at each other. And it's a really heated exchange. It's oh, yeah. like 15 seconds of this guy giving him a, a wine glass. And then the scene where he sees Fade fighting in the ring. Oh, yeah. And the the common refrain from the book. Such a beautiful boy. Such a beautiful boy. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, Giancarlo Gian- Giannini. Yeah. Giannini. Giancarlo Giannini. <laughs> I'm just going like to go with Panini, that. Like Panini Giannini. Giannini. The Emperor Shaddam IV. That's And that the is. shimmery rainbow yes, outfit. The, the costumes. Let's pause a moment and address the costumes because they are my favorite favorite part i can't say i love the emperor's outfit you don't like his iridescent dress it is um it stands out yes and it doesn't look like bad it's just i'm not sure what my issue with it is um a lot of the other costumes i think it's the fit Maybe it's the fit. I think it's because a lot of the other costumes feel like an outgrowth of something we have now. Like the Spacing Guild almost look like maybe nun or monk habits. Yes. Where they have the hat. and the, Absolutely. And then the um, Bene Gesserit have the, again, like an almost. There's a lot of ornamental aspects yeah, like, to the costumes. Yes, the, and the hats. But then. The emperor's, but the emperor is literally wearing like 
an Amish-style dress, but iridescent and skin-tight. Yes, I think it's the skin-tight part where everybody else wears their costumes are ornamental and very, like, flattering to their figures. Maybe if we had, like, modern, like, cast, um, I don't know, prep where you spend, like, the six months before you start oh, filming. buff or something. Yeah, like getting bulking up a little bit. The guy who plays Fade did. Oh, yeah. 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 But no offense, Giancarlo. <laughs> it's not that flattering on you. It's so weird. I get where you're going. It's not the most successful of our costumes. Yes, but sure. in general... Amazing so costumes. We have complained about their still suits in the past. Mm-hmm. And I found out that the still suits in this series are based on the cooling suits that they wear in NASCAR. Oh. Yes. So the suits that they wear in NASCAR have like they circulate cool water mm-hmm. throughout the suit to keep them cool because of course they, they don't have anything but an engine. And like a roll cage. They don't have air conditioning. And they're traveling really, really fast. So heat is an issue. It it keeps the rider cool. Um, That's what they based it off of. And I have to say they looked better than I remembered. Yeah. They probably looked worse on lower resolution screens. Maybe. Because there are some details that I was like, oh, okay. Like where where the straw comes out. Yeah. There's a bunch of tubes that radiate out from there to different parts of the suit. I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense. Like connecting all the catch pockets to the the tube that you drink from. I don't remember seeing those before, but I may have been watching on a much smaller screen from farther away at lower resolution. So Yeah. We also get Julie Cox as the Princess Irulan. And I like Irulan's expanded role. Yes, I like throwing her in there. I was telling Rachel when we were watching it. Yeah. That I really liked knowing knowing that what Paul and Chani's relationship is going to be. Where because he's been having these dreams and visions about Chani like for years. And then when he finally like... Yeah, the sleeper awakens. Yeah. Uh, that really gets expanded in his mind. He knows that Chani is the one. Yeah. He knows what their future is going to be like, right? And he is completely in love with her. And so at the end of the book, when you throw in Princess Irulan, it's kind of like, eh, she's just kind of this. It plot feels like character. a political maneuvering. It just feels very. Yeah, it's a very shallow yeah. uh, character interaction. And so I appreciate that in the sci-fi series, they throw Princess Irulan in from the beginning and her and Paul you know, have some chemistry and they kind of like each other. Yeah. And that adds more depth to the relationship that Paul and Chani are going to have. Right. Because it's not just... Oh, here's my fated mate. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> I hear you. Here's let's see, I heard someone say this on a video on some platform the other day. That if they're Oh no, no, no. It, uh, I think it was from it was a snip from The Good Place. Okay. And the guy was saying if there is such a thing as soulmates, they are created Mm. not they don't already exist gotcha it it's an emergent property of two people having such a deep interaction i gotcha and so that's what i was reminded of just kind of stewing on what are the impacts for paul and chani's relationship if paul and irulan kind of have some stuff going on yeah uh And it's that they still, it's not that they were fated to be together. It's that they are 
the right people for each other and their destiny isn't so much that they end up together. It's that they grow together together. Yeah. 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 And I also think introducing her earlier fulfills the role that her little snippets at the beginning of each chapter do. Right. Where it gives us um, insight into her character that we otherwise would not have gotten. Because right. like if you think in the eighties Dune, we see her at the very beginning in the extended edition. In the non extended right, edition. Info you dump at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and then you see her at the very end, and that is it. So peppering her in really kind of deepens deepens the choice at the very, very end. Where Paul is like, Yeah, sure, we can get together. But you can have the title of wife. You will, or you can have the title of like my wife. But you'll never be my wife. You'll right. never be the one I love. I do like um, the guy who plays James Watson. I'm sorry, guy who plays Duncan Idaho. His name <laughs> is James Watson. Sorry, I looked at it to make sure I remember what it was. But his name is James Watson, and he plays Duncan Idaho. And he is apparently from the planet of Scotland. <laughs> where you get to have a Scottish accent. Rachel was telling me that the guy that plays Paul is Scottish. Yeah. And I was like, huh. He does a really good, just like neutral American accent. Yeah. Uh, and then we hear Duncan talk and I was like, oh, I wonder if they're from the same village. <laughs> I don't know. One, uh, I don't know. James Watson's I was just from thinking, Glasgow. Because he's, he has, his accent is so recognizable they're both from glasgow okay maybe they knew each other but I, yeah i'm sure but, i'm sure don't everybody in scotland know each well, other? Well, if you're if you're actors in the same city i guess they're on um paul is four years younger yeah or older and they're they're similar age yeah they're similar similar age, age actors in the same city that's where I was going with maybe they knew each other. Yeah. The initial line was, oh, they're all Scottish. <laughs> yeah. But then you said they're both from Glasgow. Yeah, okay. Alec Newman is 26 in this. He's playing, he's not playing 15. He's supposed to be a little bit older. Right. They deliberately made him older so that they'd have a bigger pool of actors to choose yeah, from. Yeah, and they really... And thank God, because if I have to watch a 15-year-old boy... Do all it like save his mother and then two years later save the world. Right. That that's a little that's bit a unrealistic yeah. in the book. But then he's supposed to be like extra mature because of all his like if Kate was mental here mental potential and if Kate was blah, here, blah, she blah, would blah, point blah. out that in that world fifteen is older. Except it's the future no i know but it's more futile i mean it's basically feudalism in space it, it literally is it literally feudalism. is feudalism in yeah. space and he is burdened with terrible purpose so <laughs> um it ages you okay the, the unbearable weight of massive destiny massive uh what does he call his his like um terrible purpose yeah yeah on um, his massive weight of terrible purpose yeah, I think that he plays him. I, I do like that really the only way we're going to age him up is we go from brushing his hair over into his on his forehead to swooping his hair up. But it works. And the makeup. And they really have him. And his demeanor. Yeah. And his demeanor. Yes, yes. it's mostly his demeanor. And they have like a ton of foundation and stuff on him. Like when we see him in the ship. Yeah. When they're on the way to Arrakis. Another thing you would not have seen on the CRT TV. Right, but it's, I think, to make him look younger and more pale. Mm. So that a when... A lighter shade of pale. I mean, he's Scottish. You don't have to try hard. <laughs> shh, shh. We probably have Scottish listeners. We love you. And it... I'm, I'm I'm a ginger. I... Yes, <laughs> I can say that because I'm a ginger. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, if I don't get outside, like... A couple times a week, I'm like super white. Oh, he's only five foot eight. Alec Newman is. Yeah, I was thinking he looks really short when he's around all the other dudes, especially yeah. um, William Hurt. Yeah, 
it's a very father-son height difference. <laughs> but um, they, the makeup and the hairstyle accentuates the the affect that he yeah. projects of the just young, spoiled, you know, royalty. Yeah. I think he does a better job of conveying I have grown up, like I start as a child right. and then I grow up than um, Kyle MacLachlan does. Yes. Yeah, because in, in Kyle MacLachlan's case, he's pretty much already competent and like hyper-rational and yeah. he can do all the statecraft stuff. Yeah. And so like in the scene with, with the like the big dinner party – which we include. Which we include. This is like the only adaptation that includes the dinner party. I don't know. I've does only, the new one not? I've only seen it once. Oh, okay. I think the new one does. Okay. And it's like similar. It's... Verbal chess? If I'm recalling correctly, which I may be... I make things up in my head a lot. So. That's fine. Let's wait and confirm I'm, that when we watch that. But let's, I'm let's 80% confine, confident. Let's confine the discussion to the episode we just watched, which okay. is part one. So they one. have the dinner party, but it's not close to the book. No, it's not. Because, we have the dinner party at all, which is right. great. But Paul, like, storms off. Just to, like, reinforce this unmature character. Yeah. He... He gets upset at what something. Yeah, smart says, but not mature. Off. Right. Yeah, and it also gives us a chance for Irulan and him to have like a private moment. And I do like this part where they're complaining to each other, and he's like, "Are you trying to intimidate me?" And she's like, "No, I'm trying to interest you." Right. The <laughs> the stereotypical, uh, yeah, teenage boy, totally misunderstanding the girl flirting with him. Yeah. 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 She's yeah. like, no, I'm telling you, I'm, I dig you. Like, we could make yeah. this happen. You're a lot more interesting than I thought. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, what do we think about the eyes in this version? The glowing eyes. The glowing blue eyes. Yes. It is much more pronounced. Yes. I like it better. Yes. It lends to some it's, pretty cool effects later when they're all in the darkness. Yes. And then they like, you can just see their eyes. Right. Every once in a while, I think it's a little bit too much, mm. but it's well done. Yeah. I, I, I like this slight twist because it creates an even more otherworldly feel right. to it. It makes it feel more mystical. Yeah. One of the other things I've always, always loved about this is they hired local actors. So these are almost all Czech actors yes. outside the main group. Yeah, especially the Fremen. Like all the Fremen are local, like. The, I'm not sure Stilgar is, but most of them people. are. And it just right. gives us this sense of like exoticness this otherworldliness because they have this accent and it's not a familiar accent. It's not an accent we hear very often. And it just gives so much flavor to Right. And a lot of them didn't happening. speak English. So like when uh, you're I don't know about that. Oh, okay. That's what I'd read about it. And I'd I'd thought it was on the nineteen eighty four one, but I'd read an article a while back about when they were filming it, they hired local people. Yeah. Um, maybe we need like, to get that book DVD combo about the making ooh, maybe, of Frank maybe. Herbert's Dune. <laughs> uh, the secrets of. The secrets of, of Frank, Frank Herbert's Herbert Dune. Dune. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the article I was reading was talking about spaghetti westerns where they were in Italy. And so you have all these westerns that have like English dialogue but all the extras are local people who don't speak English. Yeah. Local actors. And so. Well, they're not really it, extras. I mean, some of them are extras, but a lot of them are just like, they're, they're characters. Right. But they're played by local okay. actors. Yes. Yeah. Like Liette and yeah, some of the but, other ones. Um, they were, this article I was reading was talking about 
uh, the, the spaghetti westerns and Dune were two of the things they were talking about. And one of the aspects that they were highlighting was having like non proficient English speakers speaking English lines, lending a sense of, uh, they said in the spaghetti Westerns, it just kind of comes off as bad acting, yeah. but in Dune, it kind of works because they're supposed to be, you know, other. Other. Yeah. They're yeah. supposed to be foreign. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so it works really well in Dune because it kind of accentuates the foreignness. I don't know how I feel about the green cloaks. That's maybe my only one. In the desert? Kibble. Yeah. Quibble. Yeah. Quibble. Um, yeah. I don't know that we needed to look like we were going to Hobbiton. When we need to blend into dunes and there's no green. And I thought the worm maybe was they're, cool. Maybe they're elven. I thought the worm was cool. I mean, it's a bad CG worm, but I thought the worm was cool. The like sound it makes. Yes. Yeah. It reminded me of the new dune sound where it's like the gar gargling sound almost. Mm -hmm. So this is broken up into three parts and it's the same three parts as the novel. Right. And they are even named the same. So part one is, yeah, I'm waiting for you to fill this in. Oh, I thought you had notes or something. No, no. Where? I think it's just Dune. I know part two is Muad'Dib and part three is The Prophet. But I always forget the name of the part one. But it's really just from them getting onto Caladan. Yes. Dune, or going from Caladan to Dune. Prophet. Yeah. So the it's really just them going from Caladan to Dune, settling into Dune, being betrayed, and then they get abandoned in the Flying desert. Flying away into the sandstorm. Yeah. They get abandoned in the desert. They get taken to a secondary location by Duncan, Idaho, which it turns out is just a small siege instead of being a... Um, the environmental Environmental station. station, yeah. And then they end up fleeing in the thopter, right? Which, as the the plot cutoff point is slightly different, but it's, it's I fine. think I think them flying off into the sandstorm is a better you know, cliffhanger yeah. episode cutoff. This is probably why I thought adaptation. that's where part one ended when we talked about the book because yeah. I was like, oh, no, it ends when they fly in the storm, and you're like, I literally just looked it up, and that is not where it ends. I have it bookmarked. <laughs> I have it right yeah. here. And I was like, no, that's where the miniseries ends. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, in my defense, I watched this a lot. I had it on DVD. I watched it when it first came out. I thought Paul Newman or no. Paul I know Newman, one of the Alex first Newman things was, you shared with me when we met was the the soundtrack. You're welcome. It's a good soundtrack. The mm -hmm. Children of Dune soundtrack is better because it's written by a little guy named um, Brian Herbert. Oh, not Brian Herbert. No, who writes it? <laughs> I was like, what? No, that's not who wrote it. <laughs> it's late. Oh, this I'm is why we don't record this late. Children of Dune. Brian Tyler. Brian Tyler. Okay. Yeah. Not a little guy in the soundtrack world. No. Not Brian Herbert, Frank Herbert's son, who's continued <laughs> the series. But Brian Theodore Tyler, the American composer. Who also did um, Super Mario Brothers, the movie, the two, 2023 one, not the one with Jaylon John <laughs> Leguizamo. Yeah. You're like, oh, Ooh. that's not, not not a feather in anybody's cap, but not that one, the other one. Also a bunch of the Fast and Furious. Oh, yeah. He's, Scream. He, he's yeah. got a lot of right. movies and, under his belt. I mean, but this one's good, too. Yeah. I, I always liked the, song, the, the music in this. I felt like it was very... It doesn't sound like synthesizer music or like a MIDI file. Right. Yeah. It actually sounds orchestrated and it fits. I don't know why this type of sound always goes well with desert movies, but it does and it works. I just, I really have nothing negative to say about this adaptation. I'm trying to dig here, but it's just one of those things that to me is just like, ah, you know, it feels like forever night. Like something that I watched so much when I was younger and it meant so much to me. It was so formative. 
And it was so formative that it's hard for me to view it critically. If I have a complaint at all, we already mentioned it. It's the CG. And Raban gets a lot more lines. Yeah, Raban does. Raban gets to be a character. And I wasn't that impressed with Raban. He's all right. Yeah, he did all right. Yeah, he's just supposed to be a brute. He does. He's a pretty good brute. I don't know why we make the Baron Harkin and rhyme sometimes, but it's cool. I'm good with that, too. Uh, I really, if I have a complaint at all, maybe it's sometimes we push the costume envelope just a little far. There's one where Fade has this triangle that's like six inches behind his head. Right. It's like, I don't know what's up with that. It's like mounted on a, I don't know. I, it's, you know what? It's all right. He, he forgot to take the hanger out of his jacket when he put it on. <laughs> <laughs> and no one's had the heart to tell him because he's fade. I feel like the rhyming thing with the Baron is because he's, he is so theatrical in how he, yeah he you know, manipulates his underlings. Yeah. The rhyming occasionally is just to emphasize how overly theatrical he's trying to be. I feel like every change that they made was well thought through. Between this one and 1984? Yeah. Well, I mean, when they adapted the novel. Anything they changed from the novel, like expanding Irulan's part, totally makes sense. Yeah. Giving the Baron Harkonnen more theatrical dialogue totally makes sense making paul less mature making paul less mature totally makes sense um it also gives us a lot of space to grow without having to give us his internal monologue right because most of the character development we get for paul in the book is just his kind of scope of awareness of the consequences of his actions right and his escalating efforts to mitigate that. Which relies on us hearing his internal monologue. Right. And we're not going to get that. We don't get whispery internal voices in this adaptation. So we have to externalize all of that development. And so we have to give a place to grow. And that's they did. They did exactly what they needed yes. to do yep. in order to give us young Paul and older Paul all in three episodes. Right. And then kind of out of scope for just this episode but i really like the continuity of the character growth between the dune miniseries and the children of dune yes miniseries yeah and we will definitely you, discuss that you get slightly older paul and he looks like it like he yeah the, he, he has Alec aged Newman up does and really it's only three it. years later there's only a three-year gap between when they the, produce this the one. production. Yeah. 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 So he's not that. He's only 29 versus 26. Right. And even Raban's expanded role makes sense because I've always felt in the book, Raban disappears. Right. Raban ran the planet. Right. Raban runs the, the planet. Before the Atreides came. We never see anything from his point of view. He gets very little dialogue. He just shows up maybe two or three times. And then as soon as they send him to Dune to be the scapegoat for the overall policy... We don't see him again. We don't right. even really know when he dies. We just get a line that's like, we think Raban maybe died yeah. in that one city. Yeah, I think it was like a dozen lines is what Raban had in the book. Right. And so Close expanding his role makes sense because he has a huge role in what happens on the He has planet. a lot of responsibility, personal responsibility for what, for the environment that the Atreides come into. Right. And then the environment, like, of Arrakis while the entire time that Paul is with the Fremen. Yeah. And he's literally the one that Paul Muad'Dib is fighting. Like, they are the ones that are going head to head, and yet we don't get anything from his point of view. And how much of a masterclass was the scene where... Raban and Harkin and the Baron Harkonnen were having a conversation and the Baron was yelling at Raban about trying to kill Paul while Fade is acting out their conversation, beating that guy in the ring. Yes. 
He's like, yeah, we had them lulled into a false sense of security. Yes. That's when they were most vulnerable. And then the slave trips. Right. Yeah. Fade. The Baron is trying to like explain to Raban that we were trying to lull them into a false sense of security. That was my whole plan that I just explained to you. <laughs> Moron. <laughs> and meanwhile, Fade takes a hit and pretends to stumble. Yeah, no, the the, the slave trips him. Yeah, yeah. Fade yeah. Fade takes a hit. Yeah. And like gets knocked down and yeah. like he's feigning that he's like you know, limping or whatever yeah. to the slave so that the slave will be become complacent in the fight. Right. As the baron is narrating yes, the whole strategy. Yeah. And I that was another change that I thought worked really well because initially it was Piter's plan to have the failed assassination attempt on Paul to lull to kind of help lull the Atreides into a sense of security right because oh we caught the assassination attempt yeah we're good when really the trap was later right and I think attributing that to Raban Works really well to flesh out Raban's character. Oh, yes. Raban actually has some initiative here. He has agency. <laughs> what? What wonder? He yeah, he's been running this planet for years, and he has contacts on the planet. What? Like he can actually execute stuff without his is it uncle knowing. Uncle. Yeah. Yeah. He only has one child that he doesn't even know about. That he doesn't even know about. Yeah. It's uh. It's good. I, I fuck. I said that before, but I really like. I, liked I this really liked the the scene, like just visually, where we start out with the Baron just monologuing, and yeah. his face is in the planet. The planet, yeah. And then we fade into the full scene with him, and then there's a whole bunch of interactions, but then at the end he's monologuing again, and he. There's something in the scene that's circular and he gets like up behind it and then yeah. it transitions back into the his face superimposed on the planet again. Yeah. And it has a really nice flow. Yeah, I think for the I mean for literally being filmed with a pack of cigarettes, <laughs> a pound of cocaine and $10,000 they had a lot of difficult choices to make for adapting the novel because they had a blueprint. They had, you know, our 1980s Dune and they kind of set the standard for like, okay, well, we can include the inner monologue. They can just like, you can zoom in on their faces while they're thinking, well, did that work? I kind of, it did, but kind of maybe we could try to do something right. a little After bit different. After the 90s, it's kind of like, eh, maybe that wouldn't, Go come across as well. What can we do that's different and better? And they do. Yeah. They they absolutely rise to the yeah, challenge. I think they really stick to the spirit of the novel. Yes, I really. Rather and they, than the letter, they they. This is what an adaptation should be. That's what I'm trying to say. You can't always take a book and convey a book one to one. You can't. All translation is betrayal. <laughs> If you haven't listened to our Bagel episode. <laughs> All translation is betrayal, right? There's yeah. absolutely no way to translate a novel to the screen without a small amount of betrayal, without right. having to change something in order to convey the, what you're trying because to convey you, you is you the convey same, the meaningful things in right. different ways on yeah, text. You're trying to convey the same film. Feeling. You're trying to evoke the same feelings in the viewer, and you can do that very differently in text than you can on screen. Right. And this was challenged with adapting something that is extremely internal. Right. All of the characters are in their own head all the time to a very external, very visual medium. And you had to try to create something that felt one-to-one without actually being able to create it one-to-one. And I think that they did an excellent job. And I think that's the hallmark of a good adaptation. That's why the Lord of the Rings from this time period 
has aged so well is because they weren't trying to turn that into a script, turn the Lord of the Rings into the script, and then just make the Lord of the Rings. Right, right. They weren't trying to treat the book as a screenplay. Right. They were trying to create the version of the Lord of the Rings for TV, for movies. Right. And the things that they cut out, I know everybody gets all complainy, complainy about like the scouring of the Shire at the end and all that stuff. And of course, that's a great part of the book. Does it work in a movie? No. Right. It's like taking Tom Bombadil out. Right. Yeah, you took Tom Bombadil out. Tom Bombadil doesn't work in a movie. Tom Sorry, Bombadil guys. Kind of filler. Uh, he's a bit filler. The yeah. first part of the Lord of the Rings it's to is give a you, bit filler. It's to give you a breather after the you know, traumatic escape yeah. from the Shire. Before we fight the Barrow Whites. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. It's so it's so that you get a light beat between like escaping the living trees in the forest. Yeah. And fighting and, you know, raiding the Barrow Whites, whatever. Right. And like, okay, we get to stop at, where's Tom Bombadil later? Tom Bombadil's after they run away. Anyway. After they run away from the Shire. It's to break up. Yeah. Like this heavy action scene from the next heavy action scene. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I love the Lord of the Rings. And you add some lore to the world. Right. Well, that's what Tolkien was all about. Was right. let's, let's inject a little bit of lore into this. And I love the Lord of the Rings. Don't get me wrong. But did Tolkien excel at pacing? No, he did not. Okay. There are, oh, there are it parts. It depends on what you mean by pacing. Okay. So there are parts of the Lord of the Rings where you are in it, you're flying through it, it's brilliant. And then all of a sudden, we're going to describe a tree for the next three pages. Literally. Hope everybody's fucking ready for that. Okay. Did, were his books paced to be easily adapted to film? No. 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 If you gave me Return of the King, this is a spoiler. You've seen Return of the King. If you haven't, get the fuck out of here. Go watch it right now. So at the end of Return of the King, you get the, no, my friends, you bow to no man. All right? And yeah. everybody bows to the hobbits. Great. If you take me from that to let's go back to the Shire and find out that the Shire is enslaved and we now need to free them from the grips of the people that have taken them over. I'm fucking pissed. Right, because we're in denouement. Because I'm done. We had our, yeah, we're in our denouement. We're in our falling action. I've had my, my, my crescendo, my. Climax. Climax, thank you. (laughs) And now I'm in the, the wrap up. Right. And it's, in the book, it's not that, it's not conveyed that intensely. Right. And so it still kind of fits into the just whole resolution of their story as, okay, we're returning home and, you know, we're glossing over a lot of things that you would have to show in the movie. Right. And so you can avoid a lot of the, just the conveyance of personal trauma of the hobbits. It's more of a, hey, we're the heroes returning home and we know how to fuck shit up. Right. Uh, and that's what we do. That's what we about to and do. And we save the day. Right. And so that's how it kind of works in the book. But in, if you added that into the movie, it would be a whole nother battle scene. Right. And you'd have to show all these people getting traumatized and it, it would just ruin the flow of the Right. And you movie. you face the same challenge with Dune because Dune is very much not written to be adapted to film. It is not like right now where your ultimate goal as a writer is to have your book turned into a TV show or a movie. Not that everybody's ultimate goal is that, but certainly that is a goal for lots of people is like, oh, they've picked up the movie rights to my book. Heck yeah. Well, There's a way that a writer writes a book when they're imagining what it will play out like as a movie. 
And we don't really know any other way of doing it now because movies are so prevalent. Movies culturally are like, you might watch plenty of people watch one or more movies a day. Whereas when Dune was written, you went to the theater to watch a movie. You maybe had three channels at home. You didn't. Right. There wasn't a lot of video content. You were not inundated with visual media. So he is not writing a novel with the expectation of it becoming visual media. So you're not getting that immediate cheat sheet. You are getting, you're getting Dune is what you're getting. And then you have a unsuccessful, I would say, successful in that I like the movie, unsuccessful in that it does fuck all to do with Dune, 1980s adaptation. (laughs) And then you have like, okay, what if we had more time? What if we gave you six hours instead of an hour and almost three hours for the, (laughs) uh, what if we gave you twice as much time? What could you do with it? Right. Okay, well, I have to take the spirit of this novel and I have to distill it down into six hours. And I'm not going to be able to do a voiceover. And I have to convey the multifaceted, like, chess. They are playing four-dimensional chess at all times, verbally, physically, and politically. And I have to convey that. How the fuck am I going to do that? And the way they did it was really just by expanding certain characters' roles, dialing dialing down the maturity on other characters so we get more space for them to grow. And I really feel like they conveyed it really well. And they convey the slight element of mysticism of the Fremen with like our glowy eyes mm-hmm. and our exotic accents, let's call them. Because the Fremen do have like a small amount of prescience. They all do. They're all connected because they are all hopped up on the spice at all times. They're like interwoven with each other. Right. And the whole, the orgy. I'm pretty sure we get an orgy. I have vague memories. I know we get some side boob. (laughs) Like I remember a side boob. (laughs) I was 16. I deeply remember a side boob. I, I I remember yeah. feeling scandalized by something in this series, so there's probably an orgy. <laughs> uh, I guess we'll find out in the next episode, but we can wrap it up here because, I mean, I think this really covers it, is I yeah. really feel like they they grasped what they were doing with an adaptation. Yeah, and I would, let's see, uh, the only thing I can think of that they left out of the first part of the book that was kind of plot relevant was like in the, the dinner party scene yeah, or in uh, some of the other scenes with Paul where it's kind of demonstrating his level of skill yeah, in certain things. Like uh, we get a little bit of it with the voice when he's talking to Yeah, and then he goes to uh, that council Reverend meeting Mother. with his dad. And right. he comes up with a clever solution. Right. Yeah. Uh, but we don't get the like just witty banter skill. Yeah. And like emotional regulation skill, but we're deliberately dialing that down. And so we they're kind of shifting that over into okay, he's a little more he's uh less mature when he arrives at the with the Fremen. And one of the things we're going to focus on while he's with the Fremen is his like emotional regulation and like ability to be witty in a tense situation. Yeah. Um, which we left out of the dinner party scene. And, and I think that fits right along with the, uh, adapting it to film yes. to em- to really highlight the immaturity. Growth. We have to start immature. Right. We really do. Right, because we don't have the inner monologue. Because we're not going to get the inner monologue. We're not going to literally see from his point of view when all of a sudden he can experience every single dust mote in the air and 
feel the like the press of time around him. We're not going to get that. So the best way to convey that is by growing him up, which means we have to start him young. Right. Yeah. And I think I get tired of the first part. I get, I don't, it's not my favorite. Like the Caladan to Dune to, I like, once we get hit Fremen land, I'm, I'm all on board. I love the, I fucking love the Fremen. Maybe that's why it felt to me like we were ticking boxes to get to the good part. Yeah. Yeah, it felt a little bit, not rushed, but it felt like we were moving through the plot points because like, okay, let's let's get all this stuff established so that we can really start having fun. And we do. And I think it's necessary. There's no way around it. You have to have establishing. And I think you could come into this not knowing anything about Dune and... And still get... Still enjoy the story. And still enjoy the story without a huge exposition dump like you get in the 80s Dune. Where they were really trying to be like, okay, let me tell you all about all the things. One of the things that I did like that I noticed watching it this time was there's a trend in sci-fi media Mm -hmm. that's distinct between like the 2000s era sci-fi and like 70s sci-fi yeah in that 70s sci-fi was very much focused on throwing a lot of numbers and like word soup Mm. for speculative technologies around and so like in the 1980s dune they throw out numbers for the speed of the sandstorm and the size of the worms, like yeah. size in meters and whatever. And that really doesn't work well, like with a modern view of yeah. sci-fi because it's all um, irrelevant or yeah. incorrect or we don't ca- we don't we're not impressed by the this is my thingy watch which has the chroma oil right they, they were they went really heavy into like mechanism mechanistic yeah. explanations in the 60s and 70s sci-fi and that may have just been part of the culture at the time but i think modern sci-fi has gotten closer to fantasy yeah where it's fantasy where instead of magic we have technology right and the magic and technology plot wise mechanically serves the same purpose yeah uh and so we don't need to go into the details of how the technology would work unless you really want to do that because it's really just to massage your suspension of disbelief to be like okay yes they can they can travel through space you know at faster than light speed whatever we don't need to explain how that works no please don't uh, and I so don't care. i appreciated that we didn't have people throwing out like numbers and specs of things it may have just been like retrospectively looking back at those television at those movies and realizing that that dates them horrifically horrifically whereas if you leave it vague it can feel of any time yeah that would be that would be what i would do is look back and say oh that didn't work but maybe if we just uh, obfuscate a few things. We can let the viewer fill in. And if the viewer is filling in, they're always going to fill in from their time. And it makes a lot more sense right. that way. Yep. Well, I think we're going to leave it here because it's really, really late, as you could tell by the fact that I kept getting people's names wrong. And now we're going to go watch the second part. Episode two. I'm excited. I haven't yes. watched this in so long. I'm so excited to revisit Ditto. it. It has been so long since I've watched this. Yeah. I guess until next time, friends. Bye. Bye. Bye.